Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you were not able to hear the sermon from last Sunday morning, I urge you to go back and hear that. That'll give a lot uh, better context. Uh, last, last Sunday morning's sermon will give a lot better context for this sermon. Though, uh, certainly you can hear this sermon, I'm sure, with great profit, even if you haven't heard the other sermon yet. But we're jumping into the middle of a long Greek sentence that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. It's, it's more like one of our paragraphs, but it all hangs together. And today's sermon I've titled Redemption and Revelation in Christ. Redemption and Revelation in Christ. Let me remind you of last week's big idea from the first part of Ephesians chapter 1. And that is that as we hear the Apostle Paul uttering this blessing of God, we should bless God the Father for his purpose of grace to sinners in Christ. We should bless God the Father for his purpose of grace, which he had before the world began, his purpose of grace to sinners in Christ. Beginning in verse 3, Paul blesses the Father for his blessings to us in Christ, exalting the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul describes these blessings God has poured out on us in Christ as, as comprehensive blessing, every blessing, he says, from the triune God in the heavenly realms. In other words, all blessings which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit could bestow are given in Christ the Son. comprehensive blessing but these blessings are determined we learned last week because the father chose certain members of our fallen race to blameless holiness and that was a choice he made before the world indeed before time itself began that choice or election wasn't just a cold abstract thing it was a loving predestination paul says to adopted sonship Sinners were chosen to be made God's children and heirs. Destined to share God's moral perfection in holiness and consecrated devotion to him. And all of this is the father's purpose of glorious grace to the elect, to those he has chosen in his beloved one, the text says. In his only begotten son, whom the text calls his beloved God the Father set his redeeming love on wretched sinners because of his love for his Son. And all this in verses 3 through 6, again, focuses on God the Father's unshakable purpose from before the world began. So in our sermon text this morning, verses 7 through 10, the focus shifts a bit to the Father's beloved, to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the original Greek language in which this was written, verses 7 through 10, uh, the section, be, these verses begin and end with the phrase, in him. Putting a big emphasis on the fact that this is all in Christ. And the principal focus shifts from the past to the present, what we have now in Christ. So Paul continues to bless God for his blessings to us in Christ, but he's now moving from a focus on the Father's past determinations to what Christ has now given us as his accomplished work in history, his accomplished work of redemption. And when we finish out this long Greek sentence another time, Lord willing, next Sunday, uh, we'll find a third section that then prominently mentions God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit given us by the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit given to guarantee our future inheritance. So Paul's benediction of God the Father, actually, it actually praises all three persons of the Godhead. And it takes in the entire sweep of redemption. From last week, the covenant of redemption in ages past, to the consummation of redemption next week in the ages to come. And here we are in the middle. 
what we presently have in Christ, in redemption. Here's how one commentator summarizes the flavor of our sermon text today. Harry F. Richard says about this section, God the Son provides salvation. Through Christ's accomplishment, the Father's plan comes off the drawing board, as it were, and is put into action. That's what this text this week is about. So the big idea, you can see it there in your handout, in your notes, is that those in Christ have been given a priceless redemption and a sweeping revelation. A priceless redemption and a sweeping revelation. We're going to spend more time on the redemption side of it, um, partially because Paul spends more time on the revelation side of it later in, later in the epistle. He develops that more later. But we will address both. Those in Christ have been given a priceless redemption and a sweeping revelation. So let's read verses 7 through 10 now. Verses 7 through 10. Picking up on verse 6, where the beloved is the last thing mentioned. Verse 7 says, In him, that is, in the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's look first at redemption from our trespasses in God's beloved son. Redemption from our trespasses in God's beloved son. In the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. As S.M. Baugh says in his commentary, he says, In his recitation of the blessings of God bestowed on the church so far, Paul has hinted at the center of these great gifts in the gospel. And of course, this is me now. Uh, pause. You remember last week we couldn't help but at least bring up the cross to explain what being in Christ is all about. <laughs> having these blessings in Christ. But Paul, Paul is finally actually getting there in our text this week. So Mr. Boss says, but now in a few short lines, he zeroes in on the heart of the gospel and what makes it gracious. The substitutionary mediation of Christ. Christ being the go-between substitute for sin sinners. Uh, they're mediator with God as the substitute for sinners. How could fallen children of Adam possibly be blessed as Paul's been saying, with every blessing of God's spirit in the high heavenlies in Christ. How could they be chosen in Christ before the world began to stand with him before his father in blameless holiness in the end? Lovingly predestined to be God's children and heirs through Jesus Christ. How could we have that kind of grace in the father's beloved one? How could we ever exchange our fallen state for this unbreakable union with Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son. It just doesn't make sense. Maybe you're used to hearing that it's a fact, but it doesn't make sense. Does God the Father arbitrarily decide against his righteous justice to just to just overlook the depravity of the elect? Is that how this works? Does God just lie to himself and creation about certain people? Oh, trust me, they're, they're righteous. <laughs> Will God's wrath only be unleashed against some wickedness while he lets certain sinners slide? Absolutely not. So how is it possible that God is actually glorified in redeeming certain sinners? How can his grace and his justice agree so that his holiness is exalted and not violated by saving us? Well, here in verse 7 is the answer. Only in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
only in the great exchange that happened at Calvary. Only by Christ's blood shed to pardon and release guilty rebels. Something actually happened in history that makes God just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When God the Father chose us in Christ, we who believe in Christ, when he chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him, he chose us in connection with a Savior who would die in our place. That's what all that language was about. He chose us in Christ. When the Father set his love on us, foreordaining us to adopted sonship through Jesus Christ, as it says, it could only be that way because Christ the Son was foreordained as the sacrificial lamb who would take away the sin of his people. If your name was written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, as the book of the Revelation pictures it for us, it's because that book records the names of those chosen in a crucified Christ. It's called the book of life of the slain lamb in the book of the Revelation. First of all here, under redemption from our trespasses in God's beloved son, let's consider redemption bought by the beloved's blood. Redemption through his blood. You have to read your Bible. Well, you have to be blind if you're reading your Bible and you haven't seen the concept of redemption yet, even in the Old Testament. It's all over the place, isn't it? Redemption. Um, In the Old Testament, the basic thought is of delivering out of the possession of another something or someone that originally belonged to oneself. Usually the idea of a ransom or purchase price is involved. So land could be redeemed, articles, obligations, persons could be redeemed. But the root concept is always the same. There's a price paid to get something back. Um, And to redeem something out of someone else's domain. Redemption in the Old Testament, Harry Eppertrude says, was also associated with God's activity of emancipating, freeing Israel from Egypt and later from Babylon. Redemption means liberation from slavery through a cost or price. There's all that background in the Old Testament that intentionally gives us the picture so we don't miss it once the great redemption comes. Perhaps Paul is thinking here, by how he words things in Ephesians 1, maybe he's thinking of God's words to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, where God connects their election to holiness with his redemption of them from bondage. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8, God says to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, but the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That word for redemption that Paul uses here was most commonly used in the world of Ephesus, of the world of the Ephesians, either for redeeming kidnapped people or redeeming slaves. So we we just mentioned the Old Testament background. There was also something very, very current in the everyday life of of people hearing this letter read. Um, Kidnapped people or slaves might be redeemed and become freedmen through the payment of a of a ransom. Um, the word for ransom is sort of worked into the word for redemption. Often there's an assumption that one's family member was obligated to pay the ransom. And that was true in the Old Testament world too. You got that the idea of a kinsman redeemer. And then God becomes the great kinsman redeemer of his people. In Exodus 6.6, God says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, 
and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. That word for a ransom in the Greek Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So again, in in Ephesians 1, 7, the Lord is acting as the great kinsman to redeem his people. He did that for Israel, redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. But in the gospel for God's new covenant people, the slavery is not slavery in Egypt. It's not slavery to a human tyrant. It's slavery to the guilt of sin and transgressions. We will see in a moment, redemption has a lot to do with forgiveness. But it also has to do with removing someone from one domain, placing them in a different dominion. As we go further in Ephesians, we will see that uh, we are in bondage to the ways of our own flesh, our old sinful nature. uh, That is, the way we're born into this world, we are dead in sins. We are... Enslaved to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, who works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2 says. And we're part of, literally, in Ephesians 2, the age of this world. We're part of the, the way this world follows Satan and clings to sin and is hostile toward God. But redemption releases us from the dark dominion of sin and Satan that hold this world of sinners in an iron grip. Paul seems to have written a letter to the Colossians around the same time he was writing this letter to the Ephesians, and a lot of his thoughts are very similar, though he's going different directions sometimes, but a lot of similar thoughts. And so in Colossians 1, 13-14, Paul writes, He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. First Peter 1, verse 18, tells us that we know that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown, or the NIV says, he was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We were ransomed. A price was paid to rescue us from our own sin, from the dominion of Satan and this evil world, to rescue us, as Peter says, from what we inherited from our forefathers, those, that feudal way of thinking and living. And whose blood was shed as the price of redemption? Back in Ephesians 1. Whose blood was shed? It was the blood of God's beloved one. No ransom could be more precious. No price could be higher. This was the only life worth enough to ransom countless sinners. Only a man who was also God the Son, holy and undefiled, who was infinitely more precious than all the inhabitants of all the worlds in all time, only his lifeblood could effectively pay the price to release us from condemnation. If if we would imagine one of us trying to lay down our life as a ransom before God for someone else, Scripture says that's crazy talk. Psalm 49, verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. And in fact, that context in, in Psalm 49 is speaking, it speaks much of how the wicked specifically are doomed to death and the grave and what lies beyond in the second death. But verse 15 of the same psalm, the godly person says, no man can ransom another. But he says, verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, 
power of death, for he will receive me. When Jesus came to this earth, he told his disciples over and over again, before, long before he died on the cross, he told them that he would die on the cross, that wicked hands would put him to death, and he told them why. Mark 10, verses 44 through 45, he says, Whoever would be first among you, my disciples, must be slave or bondservant of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. To release us from sin and Satan, a ransom had to be paid. Not paid to Satan. Paid to God. We are in bondage because our sin radically violates God's law and character. Rebels against their maker are under a curse. Our ultimate problem is with God himself. That is the source of all our bondage. All our hopeless condition apart from Christ. That We have a problem with God. We are rightly shut out from the light of God's face. We are rightly consigned to the realm of the devil who seduced our race to these kinds of crimes. We're enslaved to our depravity and we're condemned to the death that sin brings. It's God himself who handed us over to our iniquities. And it's God's own holiness that rightly demands sinners pay for their trespasses. He would not be a good God if he did not demand Retribution for wickedness. But the payment of Christ's blood releases sinners from that hopeless condemnation. That's how redemption in Christ's blood is further described in verse 7. It's pardon secured for our trespasses. We've seen it's redemption bought by the beloved's blood. It's further described now as pardon secured for our trespasses. It's called the forgiveness of our trespasses. Harry F. Richards says, Forgiveness here means literally the freeing of a person from what binds him, which precisely suits the context of liberation. We are let go from our sins and what they demand. Our sins here are called trespasses. Trespasses. That word emphasizes how our deeds cross the line. They trespass, and they violate God's righteous precepts and commands. And isn't that what we naturally do as members of Adam's race? Don't raise your hand because you'd be a liar. But who here can say, oh no, I'm not like that. I don't cross lines just because I want to. Adam transgressed God's command and took forbidden fruit, but it wasn't just a a matter of fruit. He was usurping God's glory, deciding for himself what was good and what was evil. And now we're born with hatred for God's commands. Yes, we still have, we are still made in God's image, twisted though it is now in our sin. It's not that everyone is as evil as they could possibly be. God graciously restrains our race from going to the depths we could in this life. But we're born with a hatred for God's commands when it comes down to it. When we see a line our creator put there, often we cross it. He says we must tell the truth. But we decide that we will deceive if it suits our agenda. He says we must worship only him. But we decide to place more value on anything and everything in creation than we place on our creator. We will live for just about anything rather than God himself in our natural state. God says we must honor and obey those he's placed in our lives as authorities. But we disrespect and disobey our authorities in the home and in civil government. 
no one ever had to teach you how to disobey and disrespect authority. There wasn't a class in the nursery that taught you disobedience. It was natural for you. God says we must love others as we love ourselves, but we hate and lash out at those who get in our way. We envy them. We desire what belongs to them, not to us. Given a good enough chance, we steal their possessions, maybe even their spouse. And even if we aren't actively stealing, we are hell-bent on the discontent, greedy mindset that God forbids. Maybe I can't have that right now, but I resent the fact that I can't have it. I covet that. Of course, we're not going to stay here in the bad news, but we have to understand what the truth is here. In Romans 7, starting in verse 7, Paul speaks of just how sinful sin is in light of God's law. And he speaks of his own experience, even as being raised as such a religious member of God's old covenant people. Even Saul of Tarsus was like this. Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, God's commands, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. Don't have this greedy desire. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul is pointing out that the law of God just by itself cannot make us better people. It actually makes us worse people. Why? Because God says in his commands, don't do this. This is wrong. This is evil. And as soon as we hear that, we think, oh, there's a line there, is there? What if I want to do that? And we do it more. It's not the law's fault. It's our fault. We're sinners. We're rebels. There's no excuse for our trespasses. They aren't simple mistakes, missteps. They're not just errors or weaknesses. They're transgressions. Even those who've never seen the Bible have the basic sense inside of them of right and wrong. But they violate that gift of their creator all the time. Paul says in Romans 2, verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, having things like the Ten Commandments, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, who didn't grow up with the Old Testament in this case, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Even those who don't have a Bible, they sin against God's law because the work of the law is written in their hearts, in a sense. We are not merely imperfect. We're not born into this world as good people who unfortunately have some flaws and some bad influences. We are evil. We're stubbornly, brazenly evil. Now again, like I said earlier, I'm not denying the fact that there's relative good that people do who are outside of Christ. God's common grace is a real thing. We see God's goodness 
in those who are made in his image, even though it's, it falls far short of God's goodness. In this life, we see people who at least kind of keep it together in an outward sense. And they have a sense of what's right and wrong. But we're talking about the heart. We're talking about the inner depths of our soul. And sin, depravity, is total in the sense, not that we're as bad as we could be, not that we've done everything bad we possibly could do, but in the sense that every part of us is corrupt. Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, and this is according to God's perfect standard, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, or cobras, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know, Paul writes, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, by obeying God's commands, he he means, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. God's commands can't make us better people on their own. Apart from the gospel, they can only condemn us. But now, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies God's holy wrath against sin. A propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So back to the cross. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, that redemption in his blood, it was the one and only blamelessly holy man ever, Receiving in his body and soul what should have happened to our sinful nature. When Jesus was fastened to the cross, he was so united with his sinful people that it was our hideous sin nature fastened up there and crucified in him. And God, in his role as judge, looked on Jesus as our representative. And... He looked on him with the condemnation and fury that our sin had earned. Were God's wrath poured out on us for what we have done, we would each spend an eternity in agony and outer darkness. But God's beloved one, (laughs) he's one of our race, but he's so much better than us. The agony of his body and soul on that cross for a few hours was incalculably precious, as I said. There's no measurement of the merit of that. He hung there, judicially forsaken by his father as our substitute, crushed under the curse of the law we had broken. And he drained the cup dry that we could never drain in eternity. He drained it to the dregs. And now, because God so loved this wretched world that he gave his only begotten son to that kind of a death. Whoever believes in Christ the Son will never perish, Scripture says, but has now eternal life. Now notice that Paul does not say here that we are awaiting redemption and forgiveness. He doesn't say that we will be forgiven someday if we, if we somehow prove worthy enough of Christ's blood. No. He says, in him we have now 
we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It is ours now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're clinging to him alone for peace with God and eternal life. Your trespasses are forgiven. There's no fine print there. God will never judge you for your sins. Now you say, doesn't God have fatherly displeasure with his children when they sin? Yes, but in the sense of a father loving his children and chastising them and making them more what they ought to be, more like him. But he never gives us what our sins deserve. And he never, never even gives us a little bit of what our sins deserve. He does not look on us with the righteous hatred which sinners deserve. He looks on us with the perfect love he has for his own son. And even in Judgment Day, Pastor Sam Waldron preached a wonderful sermon on this recently, by the way, if you want to look it up, about the judgment seat of Christ. Even on Judgment Day, God will never bring up your sin to throw in your face again if you are in Christ. Never. You're forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, Scripture says, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He's thrown it into the depths of the sea. And Scripture is clear that this includes all your trespasses, past, present, and future. It's not that you come into Christ in faith and the slate is wiped clean and then you start filling up the slate again. Not just a fresh start. Even the sins you haven't committed yet, they're already forgiven at the cross. God no longer judges you to be a sinner. Jesus' cross has exchanged your condemnation for his justification. Declaring you righteous in the righteous one. God has declared that you are, here's that phrase that Paul's using all over the place here, you are in Christ, his beloved one. He welcomes you as he would welcome Christ himself. One of the Puritans, I think it was Samuel Bolton, said something to the effect that God would just as soon call Jesus Christ to account for your sin now as he would call you to account for your sin now, if you're in Christ. He'll never do that. So Romans 8, verses 31 through 34 say, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, delivered him over to that kind of a death, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You think God's going to go back on his declaration about you in Christ? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You think Jesus is going to, after all that, you think Jesus, after Becoming flesh for you. After living a perfect life in your place. After suffering the wrath of God in your place. After rising from the dead for you. And after ascending to heaven to be your advocate. Suddenly you have a bad day and he's going to say, I'm tired of this person. I'm going to condemn him. No. There's no one left to condemn us if we're right with God. This is all grace. This is the, the third subpoint point here. All, this is all grace lavished upon unworthy sinners. Paul says this is according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. The lavish riches of God's grace to those in Christ is a theme that Paul returns to later. As he, as he thinks again about our hopeless condition outside Christ. 
when he talks about how we were dead in sins, how we were enslaved to the devil, how we were happy that way in our depravity. He cannot, Paul cannot get over, when he thinks about that again, he cannot get over the sheer magnitude of God's mercy and his grace to us. Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me read that last verse again, because you probably missed it. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Picture it this way. God is an archer. God is an archer who has made us his target. That he may take aim at us and empty his quiver of grace. But to do that will take an eternity. You want to see how much kindness God can unleash. Watch how he treats his elect. That's the point. The riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For all heaven and earth to watch. And you'll be watching forever. And you'll never get bored. This is the grand display of his grace. And God chose us to be the center of piece of this display. Trophies of his grace. Watch how kind I can be to someone who deserves the very opposite. That's us. Now, we, we, we moved slowly through that first point, redemption from our trespasses in God's beloved Son. Now we're going to finish out the text a little more quickly. Second, there is revelation of God's wise plan in his exalted Christ. Big idea was that those in Christ have been given a priceless redemption and a sweeping revelation. Something's been made known to us that we couldn't have known otherwise. We couldn't have seen it. Now we see it. If we believe in Jesus, there's a revelation of God's wise plan in his exalted Christ. In all wisdom and insight, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here Paul only begins to mention themes. He'll expand more later in the letter. And for the sake of time, we have to do the same thing right now. Notice two things here about this revelation. There's, first of all, wisdom. Wisdom revealed in God's disclosed will. Then we'll see that, that history is resolved under Christ's universal dominion. So first of all, wisdom revealed in God's disclosed will. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. In chapter 3, when Paul again talks a lot about this, the mystery of God's will that he's now made known, he stresses God's wisdom that's displayed when he finally opens it up to us. What are we talking about? The mystery of his will. Well, in the New Testament, this idea of the mystery of God's will, it's, it's like something that was secret until God chose to make it an open secret. It's something that we could never have figured out unless God had revealed it to us. S.M. Boss says, there's nothing here to suggest that God is making known mysterious rites or rituals or is granting secrets to a select few, but rather he is broadcasting what he had eternally planned about the extravagant largesse of grace, that, those, that riches of his grace, in the present time to sum up all things in Christ. He says, redemption in Christ had been prophesied earlier, but in such a way that its exact character was hidden until its historical fulfillment. 
You remember there were plenty of aspects of the gospel that even the disciples who were walking side by side with Jesus for three years, they still didn't get till it all happened. Even when Jesus tried to tell them, they didn't get it. What's he talking about dying and rising from the dead? But then, once it was brought to fulfillment in history, God opened it up for us to understand what the plan was. How could anyone know God's will, his intentions, and his purposes, unless God himself revealed it? It pleased God to only reveal his grand plan for creation and for history, to only reveal that in connection with Jesus' incarnation and death and resurrection. God gave his prophets shadowy glimpses of the plan, but it was only made plain, clear as day, once Christ had accomplished his work on the earth. And it's plain for those who believe in Christ. People outside of Christ can be told the basics of this plan from Scripture. We aren't hiding it from them. But they don't really understand. They won't really understand and believe it unless they embrace Christ himself. You can't understand the plan unless you personally now know Jesus. You won't get it. It won't seem significant to you. Yet the mystery, the great secret of God's plan for everything, is now revealed to those in Christ. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 through 12. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 12. Paul had said that he, he, he had acknowledged that... Um, The wisdom imparted by ministers of the gospel is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. It's not the wisdom of the world. But verse 7, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Uh, Now as we talk about the mystery, as it's spoken of in Paul's writings, let me just mention, some want to say that this mystery of which Paul speaks is just this or that aspect of New Testament truth, like Maybe it's just the fact that believing Gentiles are now equal partakers in the Messiah with believing Jews, and there's there's one body of Jew and Gentile. Maybe that's the mystery. Well, that's one great aspect of it, but that's not the full picture. If we trace how Paul describes the mystery throughout his writings, we see he's looking at many sides of a grand diamond. There's not just one or two sides to this thing. Romans 16.25, I'm quoting Harry Eprichard here, but he's right. In Romans 16.25, Paul stresses that the mystery is the gospel and its scriptural proclamation. In Colossians 1.27, it is defined, the mystery is defined as Christ in the believer. The hope of glory, or as Paul puts it there, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here in Ephesians 1, 9-10, it is seen as Christ's purpose of restoration in salvation. In all these contexts, the concept of Gentile inclusion is either implicit or explicit. And in each of them, the keynote of God's revealing divine truth in his own prescribed time is fundamental. If you turn to Ephesians 3, this is where Paul says the most about the mystery in Ephesians. Ephesians 3, 1-12. 
For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that, the, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. That was a mouthful. We'll get there in Ephesians but hopefully you picked up some of the key ideas. This was hidden for ages in God. Now he's made it plain through the gospel. And yes, a key part of the mystery that was unrevealed before, or was shadowy, dim before, not clearly seen, a big part of the mystery was that Jesus would not just come as the Messiah for one people, but for all peoples on an equal basis. Once you understand the cross, you understand everyone comes to the cross the same way, <laughs> on the same level. We'll get there in Ephesians 3. So God's wise plan has been revealed in his exalted Christ. His wisdom is on grand display as his will is disclosed about Christ and those in Christ. In other words, everything in history, everything in heaven and on earth is about Jesus Christ. And we didn't get that naturally. Now we get it if we were in Christ. History, we move on here. History we see resolved under Christ's universal dominion. Looking back at the text, end of verse 9. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He set this forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan or towards an administration for the fullness of time. The word here is oikonomia. It was, um, this is a word, it was like a plan for the household in Paul's day. Um, as Clinton Arnold says, this term was commonly in the daily life of people living in, in the Greco-Roman world. I'm sorry, it was common in, that, in their daily life because it related to the foundational social unit of society, the household, the oikos. Every household, which included the extended family and the slaves, was overseen by a household manager, an oikonomos. Oikonomos, there you go. Jesus gave five different parables in which he portrayed God as the manager of a household. Another word related to the, the, the oikos, the household. In this passage, Paul portrays God as the household manager, but the focus lies more on his plan for his household, which for God encompasses everything in heaven and on earth. Basically, God is, is, is saying, or Paul is saying, that God has put together this plan for everything in heaven and on earth. Um, and the, the plan basically by which he will, he will bring everything to its proper place is to exalt his son, Jesus Christ. Um, it says, a plan for the fullness of time. That's not exactly the same, but it's similar to what Paul says in Galatians. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that they might receive adoption as sons. The idea of fullness of time, it's like when, every, when the time is right and everything is ready to be fulfilled, this is the plan. So what is the plan for the fulfillment of everything? 
for how everything wraps up, it's all about Christ. Um, different translations do different things here. The ESV says to unite all things in him. The 1995 New American Standard said the summing up of all things in Christ. Another translation would be to head up all things in Christ. Maybe Christ's headship is the main thing in view here. It certainly is later in Ephesians. The idea that Christ has made the head of all things in heaven and on earth. Later in Ephesians, it, it makes clear that Christ's universal dominion is his headship over all things for the sake of his church for whom he shed his blood. But, as I said, this is a, um, it's hard to really unfold this until Paul unfolds it. So, what's the basic? The, the, what's the basic uh, bottom line here? The entire story of the universe is all about Jesus Christ and his glory. That's where everything is going, and those who believe the gospel of Christ get it. It's all about Jesus Christ. He's not just my personal Savior, and you, you all can do your thing, but Jesus is my personal Savior. No. He is my Savior, but he is Lord of all. To him, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So our big idea was that those in Christ have been given a priceless redemption and a sweeping revelation. We're now made right with God instead of hostile towards him and enslaved in our sin. And we now see the world in a completely different way because we understand it's all about Jesus Christ. And we keep learning more about what that means in our Christian life and as we study the scriptures, but to be a Christian is to say Jesus is Lord. It's all about him. So we've done a lot of application in a sense, especially about redemption as we talk through it, but let me just conclude by hammering in some applications. Very briefly. Number one. How should we respond to a text like this? Number one, recognize your natural bondage and guilt. The very fact that a redemption by, by Christ's blood was necessary, that points out our natural bondage and guilt. If you belong to Christ, if you're God's child, it's not because you were always a Christian or because you found a way to become a better person, you were enslaved to sin and Satan and death. You stood guilty and justly condemned. What's more, it wasn't just the helplessness and hopelessness of it. You were also guilty. All of that was true. You needed rescue and pardon. That's what you needed. So you needed nothing less than a ransom of blood which we'll celebrate again this afternoon. A ransom of blood. And you needed forgiveness not just from people, but from God. So recognize your natural bondage and guilt. And if you're here and you've never done that, that's the first step. You can't have Christ unless you first understand why you need him. You at least need to come to grips with the fact that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. I need him to do in my place what I can never do to be made right with God. Number two, marvel at God's grace in paying our ransom himself. God owed us nothing. We owed God more than we could ever pay, but he owed us nothing. But in his fathomless wisdom and his amazing grace, because it's right for God to display his own glory, and he delighted to show the depths and the heights of his grace, God made a way to pay the, de to pay the debt himself. He paid it, but cost what was most precious to him. He surrendered his beloved son as the redemption price. So if we look, we look at that and we don't marvel, 
there's something radically wrong. Marvel at God's grace in paying our ransom himself. Does God love you? That question should be forever settled at the cross because of his grace to you in Jesus Christ. Number three, live in blood-purchased freedom and consecration. Christ shed his blood to purchase you away from sin. Of course, Scripture really hammers on this. Don't go back to that bondage. Don't act as if you're going to go back to work for the old slave master. You've been purchased. You have a new master who is infinitely better. And it cost Jesus blood to get you away from that old master. Don't take that old bondage lightly and go back to it. All your trespasses are forgiven that you may be reconciled to God. So consecrate yourself to him. He redeemed you. Why? So you could go on your merry way? No. So so he could bring you to himself. As Paul has been saying, so you could be his adopted son. Live accordingly. Live in blood-purchased freedom and consecration. Number four. Exalt Christ's glory in the big story and in your own story. This is, of course, taking off, um, taking its cue from the second point of the sermon, the shorter one. Exalt Christ's glory in the big story and in your own story. God has revealed to us his wise plan to exalt Jesus Christ over all things and in all things. God has led us in on the secret. What's it all about? What is life about? What is the universe about? What is history about? It's about Jesus Christ. And God will bring, will tie up all the loose ends in him. And God will make him head over all so that every knee will bow. So, let's get with the program. If every storyline in the universe is about Jesus' glory then certainly my life must be to his glory. What kind of a, an arrogance would, would I have if I, look all, if I look at all this and everything is about Jesus Christ, but then say, well, but my life is about me and what I want. What? You're a Christian. God's let you in on the secret. And you'll never be satisfied if you try to live for anyone but Jesus Christ anyway. Remember the big story and how your story fits into that story. And even if you don't understand what God is doing in your little story, you know the big picture. And you know that somehow, in God's wisdom, your story fits into that big picture to the glory of Jesus Christ. So live for him. Forget yourself. Forget your own ambition and pride. Have holy ambitions for Christ's sake. Be renewed in your mind so you can approve, test and approve what God's will is for your life. But forget about your own way of doing things and your own separate agendas. Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In fact, he said also in a different place, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all about Jesus Christ. So how's that going to change your habits and your inclinations tomorrow morning? You have to stop yourself and say, it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, shall we? Thank you, Father, for your abundant, unspeakable grace in your beloved Son.
Thank you that we get to be, that we get to have front row seats in your display of your love for your son, in your display of your, the glory of your grace. Not only do we have front row seats, we are, we are on stage. We are principal characters in the, in the drama of redemption. You've made us the eternal objects of your kindness in Christ Jesus. Humble us, Lord. Help us to know how much you love us. And what kind of unshakable, unfathomable grace is ours. Help it to, to help that realization to seep down into the, the cracks of our lives. Into the places where we don't live as we ought for Christ. Most of all, Lord, help us to go away today with great joy and rejoicing in your amazing grace. And if some need to experience that grace for the first time, may today be the day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.